Well, I've been enjoying another round of physical therapy. <laughs> the motto on the wall where I get physical therapy is, if you're not in pain, we aren't doing our job. <laughs> this week I told the, uh, the assistant who was putting me through my paces after I'd worked for a while, I said, you're working me so hard that my good leg is as sore as my, as my surgical leg. And he said, oh, that's great. My boss will be real proud of me. <laughs> sure enough, as, as I was going out, I, I jokingly mentioned that to his boss, and his boss went, good. <laughs> Unfortunately, the only way to get a strong and limber leg after surgery is to put out a whole lot of effort to work at exercising. The therapist knows what needs to be done, but I have to do it. I have to give the effort. I have to put in the work. And in Philippians 2, we're going to learn the same truth in the Christian life, which is this. God can only change your life with your participation. Now, I know that sounds a little bit like I'm diminishing the power of God. I'm not at all, because I think you'll see as we read this scripture that that's exactly what God is telling us. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those in earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. In verses 1 through 4 of this chapter, God sets out the foundation and definition of humility. He says, look, you're in Christ you have the Holy Spirit, you have fellowship, all of these things are there. It's possible for you to be a humble, godly person. In verses 5 through 8, God gives us the example of humility in saying, look what Christ did. He's your example. And in verses 9 through 11, God encourages our humility by reminding us that he exalted Christ. Christ put himself down and served in a humble way, and God exalted him. And he says, God will do the same for you. Now in verse 12, he says, you need to take this truth and start living it. As you have always obeyed, now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. The, the key word here is work or effort. Work or effort. Work 
out your own salvation. First thing we need to understand about this, this truth today is this. There's a distinction here. This command is about spiritual growth, not about earning salvation. There is no place in the scripture where God says, do a whole bunch of religious things and you will please God and then he will let you go to heaven. There's no such truth in the scripture and neither is this teaching that. Part of the way that I understand this, this passage is not teaching that you can earn your salvation is that the book, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, is addressed to those who are already saints. The word saint means uh, somebody who has been made righteous, a Christian person. The book is addressed to Christians, so he's not telling them to earn their salvation. In verse 12 that we're considering today, he calls these people beloved. And he never calls unbelievers beloved. And that's not diminishing the condition of an unbeliever, but he does not call them that. Beloved is, a, is saved for family, and Paul called these people his family. And then the other reason that I know that this is not teaching us about uh, to earn our salvation is that the entire balance of the New Testament makes it clear that we do not earn our salvation. It is a gift from God. And what we need to understand right along with that is, is this. The reality of salvation has three phases. I didn't say three steps. I didn't say three things we have to do to get there. Three phases. It's given to us in three phases. Phase one is the removal of the penalty of sin. Uh, and, and Acts 16 says this, And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your household. The way that you move from being an unbeliever or a, or excuse me, from a non-Christian to being a Christian, from being a child of, of this world and of the devil to being a child of God is by believing in Christ. And in particular here, this man asked about being saved. When we use the word saved, we're talking about being preserved from destruction because we're sinners there is a penalty attached to our sin and we are headed for destruction in hell we are headed for punishment in hell the penalty of sin is death the scripture says but when you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior you are saved the penalty of sin is removed that's why we can go to heaven at any moment because the penalty has been removed our sin has been removed now we stand in Christ as forgiven creatures. But we also understand that we are not sinless, but the penalty has been removed. That's why phase two of salvation is victory over the power of sin in your daily walk with God. And that's the part we're going to talk about today from Philippians 2.12 and 13. And so I'll not spend time on this now. But the third phase is the ultimate removal of every trace of sin. And scripture such as this talks about it. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. That means to be sinless, for we shall see him as he is. Three phases of salvation. When I believe in Christ as my Savior, the penalty is removed. I'm a child of God. I'm ready to go to heaven. But as I walk through this daily life, 
I have to consistently and continually say no to sin, yes to righteousness, not to earn my salvation, but to live it out. And someday, either at my death or when the rapture occurs and I'm taken to heaven, God will finish that business and I will be sinlessly perfect before him. At that middle phase today, that phase of giving effort to working out our salvation. Verse 13 says, God's at work in us, now we need to work out of that. And so the definition of the effort that he's talking about here is living God's truth. Look what Paul says to him. As you have always obeyed, in other words, these, he was not writing to these people because they were constantly living in sin, like he had to chastise them or rebuke them. He said, you, you folks have always been working at your Christianity. You've always obeyed when I've given you God's instruction. But he says, right now I'm not with you, and so in my absence, you've got to work on this by yourself. Well, what is he talking about when he says obeying? It's not obeying the words of Paul. It's obeying the words of God. Salvation makes it possible to both understand and live God's will, but we have to do it. Godliness cannot happen apart from God's word. And this passage of Scripture makes that really clear to us. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. The way you become like Christ is through living out this truth. The divine nature, he's not talking about you becoming a God, that's nowhere to be found in God's word, but the nature of Christ, the sinless righteousness of Christ, we can have that nature. And it comes to us through God's word. This is uh, Victoria, British Columbia. Uh, it doesn't look like that all the time. Uh, I know that because Sue and I went up there three or four weeks ago or five or six weeks ago, whenever it was, before I had surgery. We had a little weekend vacation, and it was not this pretty. Uh, but uh, we just uh, strolled around and enjoyed ourselves. Thank you. And, uh, you know, we've gotten used to using the GPS unit in the car. When, the, when there's an address you need to find, you, you, you plug it into the GPS unit. And uh, it says, go here, turn there, do this, do that. Well, the GPS unit doesn't work in Canada. Uh, I, could, I could have gotten it reprogrammed to work in Canada, but I couldn't get it done before we left. I tried. The people from Garmin said, we'll get back to you in three days. I said, well, that's not going to work. So... We use the normal method of finding your way around, which is drive in circles a lot. <laughs> hey, I think it's right over there. No, we just went by. Where was that place we just went by? Oh, oh, oh. We got there eventually, most of the time, 
Is that how you live your Christian life? This is God's GPS unit. This has all the destinations. This has all the directions. This has all the information. Everything we need is here. The scripture said everything that we need for life and godliness. Everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need to partake in the divine nature is here. You will not become like Christ apart from God's word. There is no other way. The way is spelled out so plain and clear, there is no need to say, I don't know what God wants me to do. Well, I do, and it's right here. Work out your salvation out of God's word. The definition of the effort is living God's truth. The difficulty of the effort, of course, is that our human nature pushes back. Our human nature pushes back. Romans chapter 6 makes it clear that when we believed in Christ, our old sinful nature was nailed to that cross right along with him and crucified so that it cannot control us anymore. That doesn't mean we're not tempted to sin, though. We're still tempted to sin because we still have a human nature, which the New Testament often calls the flesh. And the flesh is drawn to things that are pleasurable, not necessarily things that are in and of themselves sinful, but things that can take the place of that which is righteous. The flesh has strong desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary. These are in a war with each other so that you do not do the things that you wish. I am supposed to stretch and strengthen the muscles in my right leg. When I go to therapy, they put me through all kinds of exercises and stretching and so on. And, and they think when I go home, I'm going to do those also. That's our little secret. Unless my therapist listens to this sermon today, as I suggested he might. I, I do go and work out. But I don't work quite as hard as they work me, because it hurts. In my flesh, I would rather sit in my recliner and take a pain pill. And let the pain go away that way. Because it, it will take the pain away, pretty much, until the pain pill wears off. Uh, to, if I'm going to be strong, I have to work. We need to be honest with ourselves, with God, and with others, and recognize that the reason we don't work at the Christian life is because our flesh is pushing back against the Spirit. And so we have to be like the Apostle Paul when he said, I discipline my body, or in the King James it says I, I beat my body. It's the word for actually physically punching somebody. I beat my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others I myself should become disqualified. Not talking about losing his salvation, he's talking about becoming useless as a Christian. Working out your salvation requires effort because there is a pushback from your flesh. And so we need to realize <clears throat> that it does take effort. 
And the, the, the essence of that effort is, this is not an optional exercise. You know, it's it, like the fellow that got his, his first uh, internal revenue service forms way back when the IRS was created. They sent these forms out, fill this out. And he sent it back and he said, I'd, I'd rather not participate at this time in your program. <laughs> People still trying to do that today. Look at, the, <clears throat> look at verse 12 again, please. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. What should we be afraid of? What should we be afraid of? Well, first of all, we should be afraid of arrogance. We should be afraid of arrogance. See, fear and trembling is the opposite of self-confidence. Self-confidence looks at the Christian life and says, I can handle this, this is not that big a deal. Whereas fear and trembling looks at it and says, Oh God, I need your help. I'm saved, I'm not locked into sin, but I struggle and I need your help. Our attitude should always be the attitude of humility. Our attitude should, should mirror this scripture in 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. I know of a pastor many years ago who fell into sexual sin because he had a mentality which said, I should be able to handle a relationship with a woman of a certain nature, I should be able to handle that. Now what does the scripture say? The scripture says, flee temptation. But an arrogant person says, I can handle that. Don't be arrogant when you're trying to live out your Christian life. Be humble. Say, oh God, I need your help. Fear and trembling means that we fear arrogance. If you're sinning while trying to convince yourself that you can control your sin and keep bad things from happening because you can handle it, be afraid. Be very afraid. We should also fear the enslavement of sin. Romans 6, 16, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. God says, God says that sin is more powerful than you think. We think we can dabble. We think we can sort of maintain or sort of control a certain level of sin, and it's not true. Sin is pleasurable. The scripture refers to the pleasure of sin for a season. In other words, yes, uh, sin carries a certain pleasure. That's what draws us to it. Although guilt comes with it as well. But repeated sin deadens the conscience and enslaves the person into thinking they can't live without it. The more you sin, the more you will want to sin. And we should be humble towards sin and say, I cannot control it. I will not try to control it. I will flee. I will ask God to take it out of my life. I will turn. I will do what he says. We should fear the enslaving power of sin. 
we should also fear the chastening of the Lord. Now, I don't believe that, that, that the normal Christian life is one where we, where we cower and we're always afraid of what God is going to do. Because we walk in righteousness, there's no need for that attitude. But if I am contemplating sin, one of the thoughts should be, I don't want to go there because I don't want the chastening of the Lord. Having these promises, the promises of the Christian life, let us cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of the flesh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, or he disciplines, and he scourges, or he whips every son that he receives. And if those are not enough to scare you straight, what about this? Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. Now clearly those verses are given to Christians, not to unbelievers. That's pretty strong language. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple you are. Now again, make no mistake, I don't believe God intends for us to to walk about shaking and and quivering and wondering every time if he's ready to smack us because we walk in righteousness. When I was a child in my father's home, I knew when to be scared. And I knew when I didn't need to be. And I still did things that were wrong. You see, we should fear the chastening of God. I don't want to come under his chastening. I want to be right with him. God is so good in asking to work on our godliness because he knows what's best for us. But not only does he command us to work at developing godliness, look at this. God empowers our effort. Verse 13 is so wonderful. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. See, we're not alone in this. God isn't up in heaven, and he says, now look, I've given you the Bible, let's see how you can do. No, he's he's with us, and he's in us, and he's around us. He's helping us, he's empowering us. In fact, our effort will be futile if he isn't helping us. Look at what he tells us about the power of, that's at work in us. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened so that you can know what is the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory and the inheritance of the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. How big is the power at work in you today? It's as big as the power that raised Christ from the dead. We have an empty cross in this church because Christ isn't on it. He's not being punished by God every time we sin, as some other religions believe. He died and was buried and rose again by the power of God. How much power does that take? It takes as much power to do that as it does to build godliness in your life. Not only is the power of God with us, but look at this. 
I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide or live with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. When he talked to the apostles about it, he said, he is with you. In the Old Testament era, the Holy Spirit was with them and upon them, but he was not in them. And in this New Testament era, when sins have been forgiven and we have a new life in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in. And not only does the Holy Spirit come in, but look at this. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Would you think about something with me for a minute? You remember when Christ was on earth and he would come upon somebody who was a man, there was a man with a crippled arm. And he said, reach out your arm. What'd the fella do? No, I don't think so. I think I want you to heal it without me doing anything. No. Jesus said, reach out his arm. And he reached out his arm. And what happened? Boom, he was healed. Word of God, response of the person, change of life. What is God telling you? Whatever he's telling you, it's powerful. And if you will respond to it, God will infuse that and cause change in your life. Peter said, if that's really you, Lord, command me to come and walk on the water. And he said, come! And Peter got out and walked on the water. What is God calling you to do? Whatever he calls you to do in the scripture, he empowers. There's a fella who was raised in Seattle, but he lives in San Francisco. And he's made a ton of money helping other people make money. And he wants to buy an NBA basketball team and build an arena and be the owner of an NBA team in Seattle. And all the people in Seattle are going, yeah, yeah. He said he's going to put $290 million of his own dollars into building this arena, and he's got to get some other people to put some money in, and the city has to give some approval, and oh, boy, he is the savior of NBA sports in Seattle. We never heard of him before. Do you, do you think it'll happen? How many of you think it'll happen? How many of you think, no, nah, it won't happen? How many of you think, well, it could or couldn't, who knows? You know, that's the way a lot of us think about God. Oh, well, yeah, maybe he could do that. I know what he's told me to do, but I'm not sure if it will work. Really? You think God is that small? That's the challenge that lies before us to say, look, God is at work in me to willing to do for his good pleasure. Do I believe he is at work? Because if I believe he's at work, then I will obey him. 
Sometimes we find it easy to believe in the big things. Well, I have to believe in Christ for my salvation because there's no way I could save myself. But when it comes to this thing or this thing or this thing, I'm going to follow my own path. God's at work in us. All the power that we need is available. All the power that we need is available. There's one more thing we need to understand here. The delight of this effort. The delight of the work at the Christian life. And the delight is this. I can bless God. Look what he says in verse 13. It is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. What that essentially means is God is giving us the will and the ability to do things that bless him in return. Now, some people would, would look at this and say, what's in it for me? Now, I think that's the wrong question to ask, but I want to ask it anyway. What's in obedience for me? Well, the first thing that I would say is in obedience for me is this, and it's the word relationship. In 2 Corinthians 6, in talking about living our lives in a way that keeps sin from impacting us, He says this, You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among. In other words, stay away from those that are sinful far enough that you can be righteous. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. What kind of relationship do you want to have with God? Do you want one where he is your supportive, loving, wise, guiding father, or one in which he is your disciplinarian, or one in which he is your judge and executioner? I mean, essentially, I don't want to minimize God's part in this, but you have to make a choice. Some people are saying, I don't want God as my father. I want to live my life my own way. And so they're going to go on their own way until one day they meet God and they'll meet him as judge and executioner. And he will condemn them to hell. And then there are folks as Christians who say, well, I want to, I, I want to believe in Christ as my savior, but I don't want to really follow God all the time because look at this thing over here. This thing over here is really good, but it's not what God wants me to have. Do you want to know God as your disciplinarian? I don't. I did not enjoy getting spankings as a child. It hurt me more than them, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. I know it was for my good, but I didn't enjoy it. And I don't enjoy getting spankings from God. I want to know God as a loving, supportive, wise, guiding Father. And that's the the offer that he makes to us. There's no need to know him in any other way. What's in obedience for me? The second thing that's in obedience is the word grace. Word grace is really a broad word. This is a great use of it here. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, the word grace is as broad as salvation and the gifts of God and all these kinds of things. And so here's the way I would help you define it today. I know that the word resist means to have a conflict. And it means uh, one of the ways it was used in ancient Greek is to go to war with. 
you know, the U.S. goes to war with whoever. And so what the scripture tells me is I can be a proud, arrogant, self-driven man. And if I do that, I'm going to come up, I'm going to come up against the resistance of God. God is going to push back on me. Or I can submit to God and follow him and have his grace, have his help, have his encouragement. Hmm. Which one would you rather have? I want the grace of God. That's what's in obedience for me. Number three, recognition. We looked at this uh, somewhat last week. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. I want that. I want the exaltation of God. There are so many ways to try to lift yourself up. You know, I, I knew a man many years ago who used to rehearse the hurts of his life. Every time I had coffee with him, he would tell me about these people years before in his life that had hurt him and bad things they'd done. And, and his face looked like this, literally, all the time. You know, that's a way to get attention. Talk about the hurts, talk about the pains, talk about the problems. I don't want to lift myself up in my hurts and my pains. I want God to lift me up. It's hard to be passed over. It's hard to not be recognized for your greatness when you think you're, you're being passed over. But the recognition that will really matter is the one in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ when he says, Well done, good servant. Won't that be worth some effort now? On Friday, I was lying on a, on a table at the physical therapy office attempting to bend my leg more and more and hold it for five minutes. And, and as I sat there and, and in pain, pushing on the wall, I thought, you know what? This leg was bum last year, and it doesn't hurt at all now. I thought, okay. At least in a year, the pain will go away. Odds are. And I know that. I thought, you know what? I can tough it out now to get there later. That's what God calls us to do in our life. Tough it out now. I'll recognize you. Now, I believe God's recognition comes sooner than just in eternity, and yet, if that's how long we have to wait, then we have to wait because the exaltation of God, the recognition of God is worth that. There's another thing that's in obedience for me, and it's protection. You know this verse, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. God isn't with everybody in that sense. He is with those who are with him, those who are walking with him. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God doesn't, God doesn't remove us from all difficulty to protect us. Sometimes he just stands there and protects us in the midst of our enemies. But, but listen to this verse from Proverbs. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, God doesn't always do that, but he can. 
You know, we've talked a lot about that hospital being built in Togo. You realize it's being built in an area dominated by a religion that hates Christianity. And even those people are praying for that hospital to come. The government says, we'd like you to go there. Why? Because their ways please the Lord. Would you rather be in charge of your own protection? Or would you like God to be protecting you? Your righteous living unleashes God's protection. This, is, this past week, there's been a lot of tragedy in the news. And I, I say this with all seriousness. Tragedy of, of a pop singer named Whitney Houston who died of some apparently preventable circumstances. She claimed to be a believer in Christ. There was an eight-year-old girl this week accidentally shot in her classroom by a nine-year-old boy. And it's tough to know which one of those is a greater tragedy. Because that nine-year-old boy, his life has been so hopeless that he brought a gun in his backpack, not to shoot anybody at school, but because he planned to run away and he was going to need a gun for protection. That's a tragedy. State trooper was killed by a man who had led a wicked life and determined he would never go back to jail, even if that meant killing the next cop who stopped him. If the people in all those events, if all the people in all those events had been believers in Christ who were working out their own salvation with fear and trembling, none of them would have happened. Now, we can't change those events. But we can take full note today of the truth that I can invest my life in working out my salvation with fear and trembling so that I don't have to end up like one of them. What a privilege God has given us to be like Christ. Let's get to work with God.